ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the Season 5 reboot of Breakdown, The MacGyver Murder Case, a podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For additional information, photos, videos, and documents relating to the MacGyver prosecution, please go to ajcbreakdown.com. Join our Breakdown Facebook group for continuing conversations about the case. And follow us on Twitter at AJC Breakdown and at AJC Courts. Previously on Breakdown. When Mrs. MacGyver was being treated, that the doctor said that she knew that she was going to die. <laughs> and asked her if she wanted to see her husband, and she said no. I think the handling of the firearms is very careless, uh, and, and it would be, I want to use the term, idiotic. This gentleman sitting here, accused of crime, who you have heard discharged a firearm which killed his wife, is therefore reprehensible. Finally, it's game on. The case of the state versus Claude Lee McIver is now underway. We have a jury, we have witnesses, we have attorneys crossing swords, and a judge riding herd on them. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. As you know, we've been eagerly anticipating the opening statements by both the prosecution and the defense in this murder case. I was hoping for some surprises, and I sure got some. First, one of the most remarkable things about the opening statements was who made them. We've talked at length about the lawyers in this case. There's the intense, provocative, and unpredictable Bruce Harvey. There's his co-counsel, the cool, intellectual Don Samuel, who's got some sizzle of his own. And of course, there's the lead prosecutor for the state, the booming and bombastic Clint Rucker. But guess what? None of them gave their teams opening statements. Instead, two relative unknowns stepped up to deliver openings in a trial being followed by a national audience. Salita Griffin has the title of Chief Senior Assistant District Attorney. She's had some big cases, but nothing like this. She spoke for the state. Amanda Clark Palmer spoke for the defense. She's a member of Don Samuel's law firm and has been in some high-profile cases. But she's never been front and center under such a spotlight. Both are relatively young and obviously bright. If it was a competition, I'd say Griffin probably had the edge. Her delivery was crisp and succinct. And of course, she didn't have to defend all the amazingly crazy things Tex said and did after he shot and killed Diane. She got to tell the jury about that. We'll take them in the same order the court did. So first, here's Salita Griffin opening the state's case. Somehow the defendant wants you to believe that the death of Diane McIver was an accident. 
But ladies and gentlemen, this was no accident at all. And the evidence will show that this was indeed murder. All of the events on September 25th, 2016 by the defendant were planned, intentional, and calculated. Remember when I said the openings had some surprises? Well, Griffin broke some big news regarding what supposedly happened the night they arrived at Emory University Hospital. Once the defendant got to Emory, people started asking questions, and the nurses and the staff wanted to know what happened to Diane McIver. And you will hear that over the course of time, the defendant gives six different versions of what happened to Diane McIver in the car that night. Six versions? Here's one of those versions, according to the prosecution. Griffin is talking here about an Emory ER doctor who was getting off work about the time Diane was brought in. She decided to stay and see whether she could lend a hand to the supervising doctor, Suzanne Hardy. At one point, Hardy asks her to go talk to Tex and see how he's doing. So she walks to the family consult room and the defendant is sitting in there alone. And they're talking and she asks him what happened. And what he tells her is that they were driving in a bad neighborhood and Diane asked for the gun. And she reached in a console and got it. And then she took the gun and she put it behind her back. And as they were driving, it went off. And that's how she got shot in the back. Griffin turns to the care of Diane at Emory's ER, telling the jury what Dr. Hardy will testify to. And as she's working on Diane, she's trying to figure out what happened. Because at this time, she saw two holes in Diane, one in the front and one in the back. And she was trying to determine, was it one gunshot wound or was it two? So she asked Diane, what happened? And Diane says, I was holding it behind my back when the gun went off. Dr. Hardy will testify that she thought this sounded odd, so she asked her again, you were holding the gun? And then Diane says, he was holding it behind my back. Then about 30 seconds pass, and Diane states it was an accident. Almost equally as strange, Griffin told the jury. Then he told another nurse that as he was cleaning his gun in the bathroom, it went off and shot Diane in the back. And this. And on this same night, he told another nurse that the gun went off while he was holding it in the back seat, and that's how Diane was shot. At least what Tex told this last nurse is consistent with what he has said all along. But those other statements? My goodness. The great thing about opening statements is they're basically a series of promises that each side makes to the jury. Then, as the trial unfolds, we get to see whether they can keep those promises through the witnesses and evidence they present. What if the evidence doesn't support the promise made in the opening statement? Right, the prosecution develops a credibility problem with the jury. As expected, the prosecution placed heavy emphasis on McIver's purported financial motive. Griffin noted that McIver's income had declined by half as he prepared to retire. Diane made more money than Tex did, and he was heavily dependent on her income to support his extravagant lifestyle, according to Griffin. Some observers may have thought this was a little cheesy, but maybe the jury liked it. Griffin grabbed a dollar bill off the prosecution table and held it up to show the jury. Without the money from Diane that he was receiving every month, on the time of her death, the defendant wouldn't even have one dollar. She held up the dollar bill as if it was some probative artifact the state had uncovered. 
Nevertheless, Griffin was quite effective. She added, As a matter of fact, without Diane's money, on the day that she died, his account would have been negative over $5,000. The prosecution claims that a lot of the McIver's financial issues were tied to that ranch out in Putnam County. It was costing Tex $20,000 a month for the upkeep of the horses and longhorn steers and whatnot, and Griffin said he was no longer able to afford it. Also, remember that Diane had given Tex a loan for $350,000 in 2011, and it was secured by Tex's interest in the ranch. So, if he defaults on the loan, the ranch becomes the sole property of Diane. Now we come to the delicate question of Diane and Tex's godson, Austin Schwal. Diane had no children of her own, and she came to view Austin as a son. In fact, Tex felt the same way about the child. Tex had brought the Putnam County Ranch into the marriage, but he changed the deed to reflect that both he and Diane owned the property. The state says that Diane wanted to leave the ranch to Austin in the event of her death. Diane had told Anne Schwal, the mother of Austin, that she was going to leave the ranch to her godson. And Diane loved Austin so much, she would never draft the will without Austin being included in it. Unless Diane McIver foreclosed on the ranch and took control of it, she couldn't leave the ranch to Austin. The evidence will show that Diane could take control of the ranch by foreclosing on it if the defendant did not pay. Among Griffin's other highlights, neither Tex nor Danny Joe Carter, who was driving the McIver's SUV, tried to call 911. Tex made the decision to drive to Emory University Hospital and actually told Danny Joe to slow down at one point. And she's driving as fast as she could. And she says the defendant comes up to her and he tells her, slow down, slow down. There may be women walking their babies in baby carriages at 10 o'clock at night. The prosecution says that, according to Danny Joe, McIver told her to tell police that she wasn't in the car. He later pressured her to stage a press conference and proclaim that he was innocent. But Danny Joe refused to go along. As you'll remember, Tex started inventorying his wife's massive collection of clothing, shoes, and jewelry before she had been dead a week. He claimed that he needed to sell Diane's stuff to raise money to cover various bequests she'd made in her will. The auctions raised $187,000, but none of the beneficiaries in Diane's will have seen even a dime of it, Griffin said. And this was a bad one. At least, it sounds that way to me. By all accounts, Tex truly loved Diane. If you truly loved your wife, would you leave her cremated remains unclaimed for a month? After she's cremated, Ms. Wendy Edson, the owner of the crematory, calls the defendant and says, hey, you can come and pick up your wife. He doesn't show. She calls back and says, hey, you can pick up your wife. And what he tells her is that he has to wait for the estate to start being probated so that her estate could pay for her cremation. And so another week passes and another week. And on October 28th, Diane McIver is still down at the crematory. And one of her friends from a long time ago, Ms. Kathy Johansson, learned that Diane was down there and she paid for it anonymously. Finally, there's the alleged offer of an attempted bribe we referred to in our previous episode. This was a bombshell. 
It involved PR guy Jeff Dickerson, who worked for Tex in early 2017 after he was initially charged by Atlanta police with involuntary manslaughter. Here's Griffin revealing what allegedly happened. Mr. Dickerson was a longtime friend of my boss, Mr. Paul Howard, over 20 years. And what he'll testify to is that after he was hired by the defendant, he was called down to his lawyer's office. And the defendant and his lawyer were sitting at a table. Then the lawyer gets up to leave. And it's just the defendant and Mr. Dickerson. And what he tells Mr. Dickerson is, you can get this case dismissed. And if you do, there's a large bonus in it for you. And I won't mind if you share it with the DA. Yeah, that looks awful. And that's the prosecution's opening statement. Next, we'll hear from the defense. We'll be right back. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Opening for McIver's defense, Clark Palmer told the jury that, yes, McIver did shoot his wife, that, no, he's not claiming that the gun went off by itself or that it misfired. Yes, neither Tex nor Danny Joe called 911. There's really one thing that you need to know about Tex McIver and Diane McIver to know that he did not intentionally shoot his wife, and that is that he loved her, truly loved her, deeply loved her, and she loved him back. You are going to hear from multiple witnesses that they had a relationship that people were envious of, that they seemed like lovebirds even after 10 years of marriage, and that's why he didn't intentionally shoot her. As for the moment the gun was passed back to Tex by Diane. Now when Diane McIver and Danny Joe pass the gun back, they don't object. They don't say, Tex, what are you talking about? You don't need your gun. You know, what's, what do you need that for? They just hand it back to him. No questions asked. Prosecutor Griffin said that when they arrived at the hospital, McIver can be seen on surveillance cameras, quote, walking casually, unquote, up to the ER. Again, Clark Palmer disagrees. You will see the video from the ballet area. You can determine for yourself if Mr. McIver casually walks up to the, um, the door of the emergency room hospital or if he gets out of the car and he's quickly moving, calling out, gunshot, gunshot. Remember when I was talking about an opening statement being kind of a promise from a lawyer to the jury? Well, during early testimony, we got to see the Emory video. I have to tell you, it didn't appear to me as if the prosecution kept its promise on this. Next comes a very big point in favor of the defense. There's not really a way around it for the state. And as the state told you, um, she's treated by Dr. Suzanne Hardy. Um, it takes some time. They try to get her stabilized. She regains consciousness when she's there. Um, nobody is going to come in here and tell you what Mrs. McIver was thinking at that time. Nobody is going to be able to tell you why she said what she said. But what she says to Dr. Hardy, without any prompting, is it was an accident. Dr. Hardy doesn't ask her, you know, do you think it was an accident? Do you think he did it on purpose? She offers it was an accident. 
What Diane said to Dr. Hardy is exactly what happened. This was a horrible, horrible accident. Clark Palmer then turns to the weapon that killed Diane McIver. She pulls the 38 caliber revolver out of the plastic bag. She also points to the shrouded hammer and talks about how to cock the weapon. There are kind of two ways you can fire this gun. So if you do not cock the hammer on this gun, you can fire it by pulling the trigger. And as the state told you, it takes about um, 12 pounds of force to pull the trigger when it is in double action mode. When you cock the hammer on the gun and it's in single action mode, it only takes two pounds of force, which is almost a hair trigger. That amount of force is so low, it is almost to the point where they can't measure it because it's so light. So the gun can go off very easily when it is in single action mode. Clark Palmer said there are a number of key takeaways from the forensic evidence that's expected to be presented. First, as I said, the gun was resting on Texas' lap when it was discharged. Second, it was fired from a sideways position. That's what I was demonstrating for you before, that when Texas kind of, you know, laid back in the car, sort of slumped down, the gun is in his lap in this sideways position. It's not pointed upright. Um, it's not like this. It's not back by his hip. It is in his lap when it is fired. So the gun wasn't aimed at Diane. She shows photos of the bullet hole in the front seat. She also has a photo in which the fabric has been removed from the back of the seat. There's a lot of metal mechanical workings there, like for the seat warmer. The evidence is gonna show to you that it would be just as likely that this bullet might strike the mechanical workings of the interior of the seat and deflect maybe come back and hit Mr. McIver, um, maybe go through the seat but deflect and go off at a different angle, go through the radio, go through the side of the car. Finally, Clark Palmer tells the jury one fact that has stuck with me since I first got involved in this case. I have been unable to reconcile this. Most importantly, there was a witness who was Diane McIver's best friend. Danny Joe Carter had known Diane McIver for a long time before Tex McIver met Diane. The evidence will show that it's inconsistent with an intentional killing to shoot Mrs. McIver in front of her best friend. Clark Palmer also discussed Tex's sleep disorder, and she did a remarkably good job of explaining what it is and how it works. As we said, he suffers from a parasomnia. She told the jury about the one Tex has. So most of us, when we fall asleep and when we dream, um, kind of a curtain comes down in our mind. So that if we're dreaming that we're running or jumping or whatever, our body is not physically acting out what we're doing in our dreams. People who have REM behavior disorder do experience physical movement while they're dreaming. They can um, jab and kick if somebody else happens to be in bed with them. Um, because they have whole body jerks. They can have whole body jerks when they're um, experiencing a dream and they have REM behavior disorder. Mr. McIver has a well-documented history, going back more than a decade, of having REM behavior disorder. And I expect that you will hear evidence about that. I expect you will also hear about something called confusional arousals. Clark Palmer had a much different take on the whole issue of finances. Why, if he was so dependent on Diane's income, would Tex want to kill her? 
We absolutely agree that Diane was making more money than tax. I think the evidence will show to you um, that as his income was kind of going down over the years, that hers was either staying the same or going up. I think the evidence will show that it is inconsistent for Tex to want to cut off that flow of income from Diane McIver. At this point, Clark Palmer's narrative made Tex McIver weep. She spoke of Tex and Diane's godson, Austin, and the love that Diane had for him. It's not as if Austin was only Diane's godson. Both Diane and Tex um, treated Austin as if he was their own child. They both loved him dearly. They both wanted to provide for him in the event that either one of them died. And that's another reason why Tex would not intentionally shoot Diane, because he knows that Diane loves Austin, and Austin loves Diane dearly, and he would never take her away from him. Clark Palmer had the unenviable job of having to address all the things Tex did after the shooting. The inconsistent statements, his seeming manipulation of witnesses, the estate sale. McIver didn't act like a bereaved spouse in the weeks after he killed Diane, to which Clark Palmer basically said, so what? The state's opening spent a lot of time talking about what Mr. McIver did do or didn't do. And I think the evidence will be that there's not some sort of um, playbook or set of ways that somebody is supposed to act when their spouse has died suddenly and violently and probably even worse Um, that your spouse has died at your own hand. I can't imagine anything more traumatic that could happen to an individual. And if there was a certain way that Mr. McIver was supposed to act, well, I don't know where that's written down. You could argue there is a certain way he was supposed to act, and it shouldn't have had to have been written down. Finally, Jeff Dickerson and the alleged bribe. Here's what Clark Palmer had to say about that. This was not a serious comment. And in fact, it was a stupid comment because it could be easily misinterpreted like it is now. Tex did not mean for Jeff Dickerson to run off and try to bribe Paul Howard. And the evidence is going to show to you that there are a lot of reasons why that's not true. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The state's first witness was Janie Calhoun. She briefly dated Tex before he met Diane and was a neighbor at the Buckhead condo. Calhoun said she became very close friends with Diane after she met Tex. Calhoun testified she was surprised that Tex began auctioning off Diane's belongings just weeks after her death. And this is what she said when asked if she would help inventory or catalog Diane's belongings for the sale. I don't think at that point I could have gone through her clothes. She was just too close to me, and um, I, I was having a lot to deal with myself to deal with her death. Calhoun confirmed the prosecution story that Diane was trying to change her will. She said she learned about this about three years before Diane's death when she was talking to Diane about her own will. She said, well, I've made some changes to mine. I've taken some people out that 
I'm leaving some money to you that I don't want them to be in there anymore. And she said, matter of fact, I've left you money in there, but there's a caveat. You have to divorce your husband. And I just laughed at her and I said, that's not going to happen, so I guess you can keep your money. And we both laughed about it. And that was the end of the conversation. We didn't talk about it anymore. Then Calhoun provided an answer that appeared to somewhat undercut the state's theory of the case. Ms. Calhoun, at any point during that conversation that we've just been talking about, the will conversation, um, or at any other time, did um, Mrs. MacGyver tell you that she was leaving the ranch to Austin? Not in, not exactly just her by herself. She and Tex both made that comment when I've been at the ranch before. They would tell Austin, this is going to be yours one day. And Calhoun said she thought Tex and Diane made the perfect couple. Here's ADA Kara Convery asking her about that. You knew Tex and Diane McIver for more than 10 years? Yes. You never saw them argue? No. They were very much in love? Yes. Were they the perfect couple just about? They seemed to be better than perfect. But Terry Brown, Diane's personal assistant, provided testimony that seemed to provide a possible motive for murder. Brown told the jury that he handled Diane's finances, such as making sure she paid all her bills. In fact, he said he did almost everything for Diane, except for buying her groceries or picking up her clothes at the cleaners. After Diane's death, Brown said, Tex called him to explain Diane's finances. Why? Well, remember, Tex and Diane had separate checking and savings accounts. And Brown told the jury that Tex knew virtually nothing about Diane's finances. In fact, he said, Tex said he was disappointed when he saw how much money Diane had. It was a little bit less than $400,000, Brown said. What happened next occurred about a month after Diane's death and just a few days before her memorial service. And it's not good. Brown said Tex was talking to him about Janie Calhoun. All he said was is he didn't think she was happy with her husband, who was less, and that maybe he could get her back. Maybe he could get who back? Jane. Yes, this looks awful. Prosecutor Adam Abate asked Brown why he agreed to meet with Tex in the days and weeks after Diane's death. When he asked why, Brown welled up with emotion. He covered his face with one hand and grabbed a tissue with the other. Need a break, Mr. Brown? I'll be all right. Just give me a minute. It's what my job was, and that's how I saw it. It was very important to me to finish. I didn't think it would be this hard. It's been too long. Okay. So that's why. It was important to me to finish her life. Brown disclosed that Diane had made a number of loans to people who were very close to her, and she expected to be repaid, he said. She loaned money to her friends, generally at 5%, and you paid every month. And my job was to make sure you paid every month. And if you didn't pay every month, my job was to call you and make sure that you remembered that you had a payment due, and it's late. And she would ask me every month about the third of the month, is all the money in? As for her $350,000 loan to Tex for the renovation of the ranch? 
and he made interest-only payments. It was a three-year term originally, and the payments were $1,531 a month. And at the end of the three years, Diane came to me, it was January, I guess, of 15, to say, I've re-upped the loan for another three years, and I've reduced his payment to 1400 and something dollars. At the end of Brown's testimony, Judge Robert McBurney did what precious few judges do. He told the jury if they had questions for Brown, they needed to write them down on paper and pass them up to him. There were a few, and McBurney allowed one that made perfect sense to me. Did Mr. MacGyver ever not make timely payments to Ms. MacGyver? No. Speaking of juror questions, there was also this moment after McBurney presented one to another witness. McBurney said, So before we bring in the next witness, I don't typically share with you all what's written on these questions, not because they're confidential, but some of them may not get asked. Um, but I appreciate that one of them ended with effectively, you better ask this so that no one Googles it tonight. <laughs> That's the point of the questions. The prosecution also tried to imply there was discord between Tex and Diane in the days leading up to the fatal shooting. They called upon Gail Meadows, a receptionist at Diane's company. She said on Thursday, the day before Tex, Diane, and Danny Joe left for the ranch, Tex abruptly entered the office. Here's Meadows explaining how Tex appeared to her. He was red-faced, the stern look on him, and I've just not seen too many people that look like that. He was not happy. She said Tex went into Diane's office to find she wasn't there and soon left the building. Paralegal Elaine Williams, who also worked there and was a close friend of Diane's, said the next day, that Friday when the MacGyvers and Danny Joe left for the ranch, she walked by Diane's office and stopped short. Here's her being questioned by Prosecutor Clint Rucker. She was distraught. Just what I saw. What did you ask her? I asked her what was wrong. But neither Meadows nor Williams could explain why they saw what they saw. So we have no idea why Tex was angry and why Diane looked so sad. But the prosecution put that out there for the jury to chew on. The end of the week was devoted to testimony from witnesses at Emory Hospital. Let's start with the video of the big Ford expedition arriving at Emory. Remember how Salita Griffin put it in her opening? And you'll see him walking casually up to the entryway. Well, that's not the way I'd describe it. The video shows Tex already out of the expedition even before it stops moving. He's walking, not running, but he's guiding Danny Joe, walking along the car and even tries to open the front passenger door before it comes to a stop. There's no audio, but this is what a valet heard Tex say. His name is Paulus. The guy, he was jumped out from the car and he was shouting, he said that he got shot at the back and I helped him to bring a, a wheelchair and he asked me to help him to pull off her from the car. So, Tex shouted, gunshot, just like he told us in an earlier interview. The video also shows a valet guy hurrying inside the ER entrance and nurses racing out just moments later. We see Paulos bring up a wheelchair and the nurses and Tex get Diane out of the car. She's limp and appears unconscious. It's a pretty ghastly scene. Before they roll the wheelchair into the ER, Tex lifts Diane's left leg off the ground to help with the transfer. One nurse after another took the stand and told the jury about Diane's final minutes of life. 
Here's Emory nurse Allison Neely. She said Diane immediately made an impression on her. That night she had she had on a straw, like brownish cowboy hat. She had on a white shirt that came maybe a little bit below her bottom or maybe mid-thigh. She had on blue jeans and she had on orange stacked heels. I mean, she's a pretty lady, but she was very pristine and very, very well put together. And I just remember like, oh. And here's what she told ADA Adam Abate after Diane entered the ER. She was groaning and she said, oh, oh, this hurts, it hurts. And after she's groaning and she's saying, this hurts, this hurts, what's the next? Did she say anything else? Um, She said, I'm dying, aren't I? Neely also testified that she saw Tex, Danny Joe, and Tex's lawyer Steve Maples huddling together and talking in a waiting room. Maybe for 30 minutes to an hour, she said. And here's what she said when questioned by Abate. Would you describe to the jury that evening the observations, um, the times that you saw the defendant throughout the night, what was his demeanor like? He was emotionless. What do you mean by emotionless? He did not appear to be upset or distraught. And we heard from more witnesses who said they talked to Diane in her final hour. Here's nurse Blair Brown saying what Diane told her. I just heard uh, it was an accident. Brown also said when she talked to Tex, he told her what happened, that he pulled the trigger. Defense attorney Don Samuel was eager to follow up on that. He asked Brown to tell the jury exactly what Tex told her. Do it for us, would you? It was an accident. I had the gun in my hand, and it just went off. Brown was followed to the stand by fellow Emory nurse Mary Wyndham. Wyndham recounted seeing Diane as she came into the ER. Uh, When she first got there, she wasn't saying anything. We thought she was unconscious. Um, And then uh, all of a sudden, she she made like a moaning sound. And uh, I remember standing like towards the head of the bed with Dr. Hardy. And Dr. Hardy and I both said, hey. And then she looked and she said, hey. And Dr. Hardy said, what happened? Did you accidentally shoot yourself? And she said, yeah, no, no, my husband shot me, but it was an accident. And uh, the expression on her face was like, oh my gosh. And so Dr. Hardy reassured her. She said, it's okay, it's okay, honey. No one's judging you. Then there was Shahenda Saikawala. She is the nurse who said, yes. She heard Tex say something that was pretty much unbelievable. She said she was walking through the ER when she saw Tex following nurses who were wheeling Diane in a room. Tex appeared very flustered and nervous, she said. I heard him say, and and this is what I heard, and and it was in passing, I was passing through, um, that I was cleaning my gun in the bathroom and I shot her. Cycle Wallace said she was close to Tex as he walked by. Under cross-examination, defense attorney Don Samuel got agitated when trying to get her to explain the moment she heard Tex say that. Was this happening while she was still in a wheelchair? Yes. That he made this statement? Yes, he was speaking it, yes. Okay, so the other two nurses would have heard the same thing, because they were right in front of her. I don't know who was that. I I don't know what they heard. Listen to my question. Yes, sir. One of us will talk at a time. I'll let you answer every question I ask. You're saying that this didn't happen when she was being put in the bed, but while she was still in the wheelchair? Yes. 
And there were two nurses standing right behind her, pushing the wheelchair. Right, nobody was standing. Everybody was in a hurry. Despite Samuel's aggressive cross-examination, Psychowalla didn't back down from her statement that she heard Tex say he shot Diane while he was cleaning his gun in the bathroom. I don't know what to make of this. It is what it is. Samuel had another combative cross-examination with Emory nurse Terry Sullivan. She was also on duty that night and said she saw suspicious behavior, such as Tex huddled with his friend and lawyer Steve Maples, who was holding a legal pad, and Danny Joe and her husband. Quote, this is what you're going to tell them, unquote. Sullivan said she heard someone say. I had the impression that there was a plan being enacted. They were actually um, kind of huddling like you would think of a sports team, literally holding on to each other in a small circle. Sullivan said Tex admitted himself into the hospital after Diane died for an anxiety attack. After Tex met with the doctor, Sullivan was assigned to be his nurse. Tex was calm and cooperative and wasn't crying or upset, she said. But Samuel showed Sullivan medical records that said the triage doctor had written Tex was very upset, grieving, and was anxious and depressed. He was given an Ativan for anxiety, prescribed Xanax, and told, do not isolate yourself from others. Samuel asked Sullivan about an interview she gave to the prosecution team last year, a conversation she didn't know was being recorded. It showed Sullivan had made up her mind that Tex McIver was guilty of murder. Did you say, please tell me you guys yes. are going to be able to nail him? Yes. We were all very upset that somebody was murdered and brought to our facility. And I am not a fan of anybody, the proverbial, getting away with murder. You want anybody to be convicted of murder if it was an accident? Do you want that? No, I don't want them to be convicted of first-degree murder if it was an accident. I think that even if it's an accident, people should be accountable for what it is that their action was. Not specifically first-degree murder, but some kind of repercussions for even if it was an accident. Sullivan was followed by Emory Dr. Celine Shalar, who failed to say what Griffin had promised in her opening, that Tex told her Diane put the gun behind her back while they were driving, and it went off. Here's what Shalar said. He said that they were... Um, through a rough part of town. He said that the gun was in the console because they were going through the rough part of town. They took it out and they went over a bump. And then the uh, gun went off at the bump accidentally. This appeared to throw Prosecutor Clint Rucker for a loop. So he circled back around. Did uh, Mr. McGiver tell you who was actually holding the gun when it went off? I don't believe I can confidently tell you that. Rucker tried once again. I believe she said that, Shalar said, referring to Diane. Tex didn't say it, she said. It's safe to say that the bump comment can be a problem for Tex. But once again, Shalar failed to provide the damaging testimony that prosecutors told jurors they'd be hearing. Dr. Suzanne Hardy is the doctor who was in charge of the Emory ER that night. She said she took over the care of Diane McIver shortly after Diane was brought into the ER. Here she is being questioned by Clint Rucker. The prosecution appears to have gotten this one right. When Hardy asked her about what happened, the stricken Mrs. McIver scrambled the answer a bit. I asked her um, where the gun was held, and she said I was holding it behind my back. 
you were trying to find out where the bullet went in. Yes. Can you tell the jurors, what did you say back to her? Uh, well, it just seemed odd that you could be holding a gun behind your back, so I just repeated it with the, you know, you were holding it behind your back. That's what you said back to her? Yes. And then what did she say? She said, no, he was holding it behind my back. Then can you tell the jurors, um, what did you say next? I asked her how many shots she heard. And what did she say? One. Hardy then said that up to 30 seconds or even a minute later, Diane told her it was an accident. In his cross-examination, Don Samuel asked her about that statement. Diane didn't say, we were having an argument, correct? He asked. Right, Hardy replied. She didn't say, we were having a fight. Correct, Hardy said. The point was, Samuel said, she said it was an accident. You weren't trying to steer her one way or the other to get her to say something, were you? No, Hardy replied. True to form, Rucker had a hospital gurney brought in with a mannequin covered by a sheet. He had Dr. Hardy demonstrate how she and her team rolled Diane's body so she could see the wound on her back. And he had Hardy talk about where she was standing and how close she was when she was speaking with Diane. Hardy was composed and articulate, kind of how you'd expect an ER physician to be, and she didn't seem to get rattled under direct or cross. She did say that the original plan was to stabilize Mrs. McIver and then transfer her to Grady Memorial Hospital the Level 1 Trauma Center in Atlanta. But the patient's condition deteriorated too quickly. Diane was bleeding internally into her abdomen, Hardy said. It was rapidly becoming distended with blood. Hardy told Diane she wanted to intubate her. Before you actually um, gave her the the meds and you intubated her by putting the tube down the throat, did you ask her another question? Yes. What question did you ask her? First question, I told her I was going to intubate her, and I asked her if it was okay. What did she say? Yes, please. Yes, please. She was very polite. What was the second question that you asked her? Would you like to see your husband? And um, can you tell the jurors, um, did she give you an answer? Yes, she gave me an answer. Can you tell them what the answer was? No. I asked Atlanta defense attorney and former prosecutor Noah Pines to rate the state's case so far. He, too, talked about the promises made in opening statements but not kept in testimony. As a prosecutor, I don't like to promise something I can't prove. And and there are a lot of things that I think the state is going to have a hard time proving in this case. The opening statement said it was planned and intentional. So is the state trying to say that Tex MacGyver planned that they would get off the highway, plan that there would be construction, plan that they would end up in Midtown. Uh, Was this part of his plan? Was his plan to allegedly kill his wife with an eyewitness in the car? That just doesn't make any sense, if you ask me. I was really surprised by the state's prosecutors repeatedly asking questions of witnesses that elicited answers that had no bearing in the case. They asked questions that provided extraneous information that, to me, blunted the answers that made real points. And it made me wonder if this trial will last until Thanksgiving with all these needless questions being asked by the prosecution. For the first couple of witnesses, or at least the first couple of days of testimony presented by the state, one, it's boring. It's just, I don't understand why they're presenting their case in the order that they are. And to me, it looks like nobody's prepared. I think the state is making this case way too complicated. 
Um, this is, and that's something that Paul Howard and the Fulton County District Attorney's Office does routinely. They, they overtry their case and they're overtrying it right now. The jury wants to hear about what happened in the car and what happened at the hospital. That's what they want to hear about. And to, you know, call in the receptionist from Diane McIver's business to say that one day Tex walked in with a red face and seemed stern just seems a little overreaching. I don't I don't even know what that means. If you ask my my wife, she'd probably say I walk around with a stern face all the time and I need to smile more. The judge thinks the case is going too slow and it needs to speed up. So I think that's true. Next, on Breakdown. The fact that there's no fighting, that there's not talking about divorce, there are no allegations about an affair, those are all good things. And so, yes, the jury can wonder, well, why would he do this? It's not because he hated her. You know, he loved her. Breakdown is reported and narrated by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Sound design by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative in Atlanta. Original music composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Billy Gewen, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Bert Roten, who lit the fire that became Breakdown. Special thanks as well to the AJC's editor-in-chief and podcaster, Kevin Riley, to Pete Corson, Monica Richardson, Mark Wallagor, and all the fine folks at the Journal-Constitution, plus Chris Basta and Chris Nicholson, a.k.a. C1 and C2, Buddy Hall, Josh Gaynor, and our good friends at WSB-TV and radio. Hello, this is a collect call from... Tex McIver. An inmate at... Fulton County Jail. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.